going now. Everyone's wide awake. <laughs> Nat, what are you trying to do? Drive the audience away? <laughs> Nat's feeling... <laughs> he must be feeling melancholy today. Or, or else you're feeling very reverent because that was like being in church. This is what I would say about Nat. For me. I would say about Nat. Um, I would also say this about myself. That he's this morning grand and gloomy and peculiar. Wrapped in the solitude of his own originality. Without a model. And without a shadow upon the earth. Well, that is truly poetic, Patrick. Thank you. Um, that that kind of makes up. I don't want to whole... plagiarize. That was Abe Lincoln. I know you've been you've been working through that speech. series of uh, speeches for quite a while now. Yeah, good for good, you. Good ones. Well, uh, shouldn't we introduce? This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We broadcast from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Located at 261 Moore Street. And a big uh, shout out there to Brendan, one of the owners, and a genius behind this whole mad operation. It's like a big pirate ship out here. It's really terrific. Our uh, producer today is Jack Insley. Our uh, engineer is Nat Wiener. Couldn't do it without you, Nat. And um, we have a fantastic show lined up. We have uh, Christina Grace from the New York State Department of Agriculture, uh, who is the director of Urban gardening urban far- urban farming uh we have michael herwitz from the green market who's been a regular semi-regular guest on the show we'd like to have him back more often and later on we'll be plugging in with uh, patrick manning from hudson valley fresh to talk a little bit about the dairy industry in new york state and beyond um and we're then we sponsored go today by right? yeah and then in the second hour today please do stay tuned if you especially if you're interested in the world of books um, we have a veteran publisher and writer, uh, Robert Wyatt, who um, used to, whose last imprint was a Wyatt book at St. Martin's, but he's been in the game for nearly 50 years. And joining him will be Johnny Saunders, um, who is uh, coming to us from On Demand Books, which is an extraordinary new technology uh, which allows people to download and print, bind, and purchase a book in four minutes. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about self-publishing, about uh, about the Kindle, about you know, sort of the whole the all the different ways that publishing is going in this era. But right now, let's focus on <coughs> who we have in the studio and the agriculture of our nation. I just came back from uh, three days in Washington, where I attended the um, the United States Department of Agriculture uh, conference on sustainable um, farming, hmm. and uh, I'm here to tell you that. Uh, we may think that it's all going to be happening here, but <laughs> they have very different ideas out there in corporate agriculture. Why? Land. What are their ideas? Their ideas are status quo, man. They don't want to change a thing. Uh-uh. Nuh-uh. No, thank you. Not happening. Was there a legitimate voice in the opposite direction, or do they not let that voice be heard? They didn't really, you know, it was it was an interesting thing. We had uh, Tom Vilsack. I actually taped Tom Vilsack and Kathleen Merrigan. Um, so we can, at a future date, we can broadcast those speeches, and they pay lip service to all the right stuff. Um, I do believe Merrigan really is a voice for progressive agriculture. I think she is uh, traveling a very difficult path in the sense that it's a very entrenched, um, a very entrenched business model. And uh, what what struck me, and this is I I betray my naivete and my lack of information about the agriculture business as a whole. But uh, what struck me was that really dri- what really drives American agriculture is our export business. Hmm. And I don't think most Americans really think about the impact of the export business on 
um, the farming economy, but it is absolutely huge. So if we can get Robertas to export their pizzas into other <laughs> nations, Heritage could do better? Um, I, yeah, I suspect we'd be a whole different ballgame if that was happening too, by the way. <laughs> what percentage of our is of our uh, agricultural output is exported? I wish I could tell you that figure, but it is it is substantial enough to, um, to demand the kinds of production uh, that we all uh, feel is is sort of outdated. The kind of um, you know the the monocultures, uh, the giant commodity beef pro- production, and so forth. Um, these are the things that that you know Michael and and Christina and and Patrick are all sort of trying to fight the fight against. Not that they're bad, but just to to try to raise the bar a little bit on those. And um, and for the people who are engaged in that kind of farming and who are selling a lot of product overseas. Um, it is absolutely crucial to them to maintain the gigantic output mm-hmm. that they have worked so hard and spent so many investment dollars in um, in building that ability to produce giant mm-hmm. crop yields on small amounts of of territory, whether mm-hmm. it's whether it's uh, beef production and confined area feeding operations, or whether it's it's commodity farming in the form of wheat or soybean or you know some of the other grain crops. So. It was it was a fascinating experience. I took copious notes, and um, you know more will be divulged as as we go forward. But we have a great opportunity to actually talk about that and talk about what's happening here in New York State um, and in the Northeast region, probably especially uh, with Christina and Michael and Patrick. So I'm and we're going to be talking about a time in history. You know, I mean, this conversation is taking place in probably one of the first of fifty years where um, farmers are not the major class. They're not the majority of voters. Yeah. Which they used to be. So, I mean, you go into a and town and you want it to be governor or president. And we still have the crazy subsidies. Yeah. So, you know, there is, I mean, while you may think that it's certainly true, and they, they published a whole paper, a census, there is a census on how many farmers have left farming and how few mm-hmm. farmers remain. And that that uh, number has declined by probably about 30% in the last, you know, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the ones that remain, I'd say the greatest majority of them really do want to see the status quo stay in place, whether it's, uh, fear of having to invest in new equipment, fear of having to, uh, work in a different paradigm. I don't, I don't really understand. Well, I would think it's more a fear of, uh, you know, investing in an individual, you know, to come up with a solution, you know, and I think the, um, corporate chefs, that's the next frontier. Well, we will Where have uh, go, we will have Fidel Baccio, Baccio on this show because he runs a company called Bon Appetit, which has picked up the contracts yeah. for Google, for a lot of the big corporations as well as uh, many many colleges. He serves over three million meals a day. He's an incredible guy, and uh, he gave a very very interesting talk and is very much in the forefront of the corporate structure that is supporting. Um, the movement towards better quality food overall. So, and Heritage had a, a play this year at Emory University. You know, they bought all the. Well, we need from to us. hook you up with this guy. We yeah. definitely need to introduce you to him. I and mean, actually, on a very local level, very this smart man. New York slaughterhouse system. You know, if the hams and the bellies could got someone could get rid of those, and of course, the corporate cafeteria is the best one. And now with this new farmer that we're partnering with in Shawsville, Virginia, um, to be for pigs and poultry. Um, he is wanting to sell his ground meat at Holland's University, which we made a call to their corporate chef, and they seem quite into the idea anyway of supporting him. Sure. So um, they have a lot of power with very small percentage of their purchases to transform the destiny of, you know, half a dozen farms. Yeah. 
Well, it sounds, I mean, we got a lot to talk about. So um, should we come back in just a minute with our guests? And um, I say let's just jump in. And then, okay, they're here. So put your headphones on, guys, and grab those microphones. And let's let's mix it up here. <laughs> they're already bored. No way. <laughs> yeah, right, they're asleep. You can never be bored in this room. Oh, I don't oh, know about that. That is true. Uh, <laughs> just catch me at the end of the second hour. So I'm not going to be really diffused. <laughs> so introduce yourselves. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Chris Grace, and I run the Urban Food Systems Program for New York State Department of Agriculture, which most of my time gets spent on connecting farms in New York State with New York City buyers, institutional buyers, schools, restaurants, individual caterers, anyone interested in local products. And then I also run the state's Urban Agriculture and Community Gardening Program. So it's a it's a hodgepodge, but that's a big job. <laughs> yeah. How do you um, divide up your time between those two jobs? It's a really great question. <laughs> I run a lot, and um, and the it really depends on what time of year, what's going on. Um, sure. You know, with the community gardening and urban agriculture, because I'm just one person, so much of my energy goes into supporting supportive policies um, at the city level, state level, and federal policies that can support this work, because I can't be on the ground in every city in the state helping. And and right now, because we were funded by the USDA, we have this fabulous project that we're working also with Michael on called Farm to Factory, where we're connecting upstate farmers with processors here in the city, working with a group called New York Industrial Retention Network that works with 900 city processors. So I'm spending a lot of time matchmaking. So, I mean, it really depends, again, the time of year. I work with school food at least once one day a week. I'm working specifically with New York City school food. Well, that's Meaning a topic what? Near working and dear with to the lunch heart, ladies? Sure. <laughs> working with the farms? Working with the culinary concepts teams, the chefs, then, and the procurement department to try to bring in more local products. So um, you're talking about feeding 800,000 kids a day. Or 800,000 meals a day. And it's, I want to it's give incredible. a shout out to the lunch lady. <laughs> I, I think weren't we all brought up by lunch ladies, mm-hmm. you know, with the hairnets and stuff. And mine was Thelma and Willa. <laughs> and they would give me seconds even though they weren't supposed to. And if I abused it, Thelma would throw the sandwich at me. But we had this like real um, relationship every day. But you were a cute, sassy day. little man. Well, so, there were all uh, a bunch of guys there. there were, they fed, you know, three to 500 people a day every day for most of their lives you know until they were 18 and there are some great cooks here in new york city in the school system i think that's something that that people don't don't know too much about and you know there while there are some schools that are called satellites where they get lunch in a box for the most part kids in new york city are eating eating food that has had some touch by a cook it's not all just frozen packaged processed reheated and put on a plate they're now, chopping what's the vegetables. state of our kitchens and the know-how and the equipment and, and all of that. You know, it's school to school. It varies tremendously. We have some state-of-the-art kitchens with trained staff in some schools. And then, again, we have other schools that are satellites where they're getting prepackaged box meals. And, of course, those meals are, are, I think, those schools that actually have the satellite meals are struggling the most mm-hmm. in terms of what the kids are getting served for lunch. But, again, you know, you could have a school with the same equipment and the difference in terms of how much parents interact Mm. and how interested the cook is, it's night and day from school to school. Mm. If you have a cook that's interested in adding basil to the pizza and doctoring things up and you have them out there, you're going to get more interesting food than the cook that's just following the instructions 
popping the stuff in the to boil on the stove and serving it to kids. Now let me ask these: What are the most successful, you know, parent-run, you know, projects? How do you see it being successful? Is it one person taking a lead and mobilizing the other um, parents, or is it a principal talking to the? It's everyone. When it really works, there's a wellness committee at the school where there are parents, where the principal's involved, the food service manager. Mm-hmm. You've got a nutritionist on the team, and everybody's thinking about not only what's happening in the meals in the cafeteria, but how food and agriculture is being taught to children in in the classrooms throughout the day, where you have school gardens on site, where Mm -hmm. kids are actually growing food in gardens, and that's making it onto the lunch menu. We have a program here called Garden to Cafe. It's only in 22 schools, Mm -hmm. and the kids are actually growing food in the garden. A lot of times, it's just a pile of basil, but that food is being cooked once or twice a year by school food staff, and then the student farmers are being celebrated, and with that comes all kinds of educational activities, things happening in the cafeteria, and Mm -hmm. often there's a full-on curriculum. There's a school in in our neighborhood, Michael and I both live in Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill area, and PS29, they have a full-bore curriculum where kids are learning about local agriculture in the classrooms, and and they're participating Mm -hmm. on-site at Added Value Farm and Red Hook and learning about agriculture on a little larger scale than they can in the the boxes in their their playground. And we actually have, um, we're piloting, a four-part curricula this year with two schools, one in the South Bronx and the other at PS29 with their middle schoolers. Um, each seasonally, there's a, a visit uh, from a farmer to the classroom, from the classroom to farmer's market, a uh, visit to uh, a farm to see what's in season and how the, what the farm looks like during that time of year, hmm. and then working with a chef to prepare a meal using what's available during it. So it really brings everything together. Um, and has a meaningful impact for the for the young people. Let me ask. Oh, I have one last question, and then because I've been uh, yeah. But uh, just to conclude this uh, thought in my head, I had a I was invited to Washington D.C. to meet Sam Cass, and who's the everyday chef for the Obamas, and he says that one of the projects that they're very excited about is partnering lunch ladies, basically Mm -hmm. with uh, chefs, like or not a chef, I should say, a restaurant. Restaurant partners, it could be a sous chef or it could be the head chef, but once a, a month, basically, and maybe a little bit more at the beginning, they go and talk about portion control, uh, how to get more out of different cuts. Um, how do you think that would work with the lunch ladies or with the schools? Yeah, it's worked really well. There's a it's program. There's a program called Wellness in the Schools and Bill Talapan, which who's a very well known chef yeah, we've here had in the city. On, we actually had an interview with him, and I'm going to have Nancy Easton come in. Oh, too. that's great. Yeah. that's great. So they have a really nice out, uh, effort going on there. There are a number number of um, schools that are working with chefs. The Union Square Hospitality Group had a program where the kids are going into Gramercy Tavern and there mm-hmm. but the conversations with the lunch ladies go lunch ladies and men cooks go really well because usually it's part of that process there's formal training and all these folks they want to learn more. They want to. I mean, you you don't have to have knife skills to be hired mm-hmm. and work in a cafeteria in a school system. You don't have to have any formal culinary training. Um, yeah, and what well, what, what Bill has f- been doing essentially mm-hmm. has been training the lunch staff yes, as yes. opposed to. You know, and working with existing product within the procurement system. Yes, and right? what what School Food did about oh god, it's five years ago now. Well, they hired Chef Jorge Colazo, and then they hired regional chefs, and mm-hmm. they brought in people with training from CIA and other culinary schools. So they have chefs on site that are training their staff, and, and you That's know great. they don't get to every school every year because there are fourteen hundred plus sites here in New York City, and there I think are eight chefs. 
but they do a ton of training. And as part of a program a few years back, School Food Plus, the cooks were getting knife kits. They were, get, you know, there was funding from a from the Kellogg Foundation mm-hmm. to provide some equipment and tools. So it was really awesome to just kind of just change the way people are thinking about school food. They they renamed them school food restaurants, and mm-hmm. that's why well, we have. We'd a, love you know, to help. Heritage Foods works with oh, about awesome. uh, 180 chefs. I know Green Market does too. It mm-hmm. would be uh, until the poor Obamas. I feel they need all the help they can get. Uh, and if we could mobilize their idea on a local level with Manhattan, awesome. I mean, we have so much power here uh, in terms of talent. That'd but be um, great. anyway, it just goes to speak, and then I'll throw it to you, Katie. But the whole corporate <clears throat> chefs, how important they are. Um, I think of Aeromark, Bon Appetit, you know, 5% of their <laughs> supply each and every day, you know, comes from places or 5% of their total. I mean, that would be so much, you know, and I, I think that that little mark is still considered, you know, amorphous or improbable or, but, you know, we've proven we can do it week to week. I mean, Green Market's proven it. I mean, there are groups that, that could supply on that level if only, you know, they got the call. You know, there's a couple, there's a couple things there to think about, though, when you're talking about public schools that are funded through the Child Nutrition Act mm-hmm. through USDA. You're talking about a buck a head for food for lunch, and the rest of the $2.50 goes to overhead and equipment and staff, and, and that dollar doesn't buy you much in terms of the actual food that you can bring into school. So I would, while we have everyone here, be thinking about child nutrition reauthorization, the legislation. Which is coming is up coming this up. month, yeah. Yes. Um, we want people <clears throat> calling their legislators, their their representatives and their senators to say, hey, we need more money for school meals because without that, there's not much we can do. We can talk about Bon Appetit and folks who are catering at Google and in colleges and hospitals, they have more budget to spend. Mm -hmm. And we want those folks to be procuring local regional foods. We want to see that food in schools too. And we want to make sure that they can actually afford to buy the good stuff. Yeah, and it really is. It is a matter of legislation. It is a matter of making sure that the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act does include that extra ninety cents or or hundred cents uh, to you know really fund these local projects because otherwise we're still stuck with having to buy. I mean, it's actually ninety seven cents is the figure, and it's you have to purchase uh, you know what is a commodity essentially a commodity produced um, product with that kind of money because you really cannot add in much in the way of what is the real cost of buying good food. And And real food does cost more. And you can either invest in the health and well-being of young people, or you can pay for their health care costs, for the behavioral issues that are associated with with diet. So true. And it would only make sense that you really would spend a little bit more up front to save a lot more on the back end. On the back end, Although what I've learned with a lot of the small farmers, this is just for meats now, but that um, there is a large percentage of their total carcass weight that most of them end up calculating a commodity price for it anyway mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they're producing so much of it. So, for instance, we sell our hams commodity, you know, commodity and we're a rates. boutique uh-huh. business. You would yeah. think that somehow we would be getting a retail or something premium for 150 pigs a week, but we're not. So huh. I think there is that, it, again, it becomes you almost need that Medici, mm-hmm. that Rothschild, you know, or that <laughs> state person, hopefully, that comes yeah. in and actually is like, this is the warehouse. And can broker. Bring us your products well, and believe in us. Well, this was a huge, I mean, one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot here and, and which I want to address with both you and, and Michael today, Christina, is is the distribution 
distribution problem because when I was at this conference and uh, you know we had a Q and A with Kathleen Merrigan, and that was the issue I brought up to her. I said, you know, it's really great to talk about you know using local uh, products. But the problem is, is that these farmers simply do not have distribution channels mm-hmm. or opportunities. And for them, and I learned this from a guy in um, in Cleveland named Steve Schmoller, some of these farmers it costs them forty to sixty cents mm-hmm. on the dollar to transport their product into market, whether it's a farmer's market or into some other thing. And so my question was, is does is the USDA and in your case, does the New York State Department of Agriculture, are they going to be able to, working in concert with the with the federal government, start to build aggregation warehouses and distribution channels that are not necessarily part of the Cisco or US foods? Because what I learned from Cisco, because they had they had a retired Cisco guy on there, they need to pack a trailer truck with 1,700 cases of product. And most local regional suppliers simply don't work on that scale. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that is a very real problem. And I can't, you can't fault Cisco because that's their business model. That's what they have to do. But there isn't a, there's not much in the way of intermediate uh, distribution. And that, to me, is the key piece of the puzzle here that is keeping local farmers from really getting you know, really being able to raise the, the bar for their own income levels and for and for getting a fair price for their stuff. That's interesting. I mean, the flexibility of distribution is huge. I and mean, one example we have is that we've got these fabulous apple slices, grab apples that are made by Champlain Valley Specialties, and they're made upstate. And this year, there were actually in, in 2009, there was a new apple slice program that the USDA launched that competed Well, basically, it was not an entitlement program, which means it was extra money. Mm -hmm. And so this program was offered to schools. New York City participated, and it was supposed to be regional. And a Michigan company won the bid for New York City, the same company that provides the apple slices to McDonald's. And that company could only deliver in tractor-trailer loads. So New York City was getting all these free Michigan apples they used to be buying from New York, but at, at some point, they had to call Champlain Valley up in New York and say, hey, we need to work with you because some of our orders are just too small. We can't handle the tractor-trailer load. So they were doing both. And now they're back with signing a long-term contract mm. with Champlain Valley, and they're okay. not going to work in that program. But So the, the, the regional distribution issue, there are great opportunities. I know right now, um, Patrick and I were talking about Ken Jaffe at Slope Farms, and we were talking about grass-fed beef. And his beef is coming into the city right now through a small company called Regional Access up in the Finger Lakes. Yeah, we talked about that with Lisa Tucker Mm -hmm. in Buffalo, remember? Mm -hmm. You brought that up, Patrick, yeah. And right now, if, I mean, they're awesome. They're coming back. Yeah. Oh, you mean, they should be here, yeah. Now, they invested in a warehouse, and they have refrigerated trucks. The question is, how much, how quickly could they scale if our beef industry actually scaled? And that's that's a question, but... It's also an area where we now we now have infrastructure that just needs to grow. So where's the money going to come from, and is it going to be federal or state? And I would say, since there's something there to start with, mm-hmm. that's an awesome investment opportunity that that we at the state would certainly be looking at supporting. And I think that exists across the industry. I mean, there there are a lot of different products. We've got fr- frozen vegetables coming from Western New York. We have fresh vegetables coming in through Regional Access and Angelos. We have. I mean, wholesale farmers market, and I think sure. that's an important. And there are farmers who are beginning to distribute. Red mm-hmm. Jacket Orchards is beginning to aggregate from other products, both up in the Finger Lakes when they come down, and then through some farms in Long Island to distribute to some of their wholesale accounts. I met with another farm the other day, I think Horton Farms, and they're mm-hmm. starting to do the same thing from Vermont. They pull together from about six or seven farms in the area 
they can really move a lot of product and they're they do they have a significant wholesale component as well as they want to get the retail prices to to you know boost up that income uh but one of the things and and chris chime in here please about school food and and the ability for local farmers to be able to to provide product i think we need to get over the all or nothing mentality that there are seasons we Mm -hmm, we get that Mm-hmm. We can't provide product year-round, but, of course, yeah. but we can provide product at competitive prices during a significant portion of the year, mm-hmm. and that's where we should be sourcing. It'll be good for the mm-hmm. local economy, the food's going to be healthier and better, and it really only makes sense that New York City would be helping drive the economy of New York State. And, you know, absolutely, and, you know, trusting in the, in the individual. You're the lunch person there, or you're the person, uh, culinary director at a certain place, Things aren't always going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to react. And, you know, we're counting on you to deal with the situation and, you know, deal with the seasons. And And I I think empower people. But um, I was saying one of the things uh, that Heritage Foods, and I'll officially say it on radio, we would love to get funding from the state. Um, I was talking with a few of these guys from Roberta's who built this whole place to be, I think, the first thing is maybe it's at hunts point market maybe it's here somewhere in brooklyn just to receive product and i Mm -hmm. think uh, people forget that prepared food is a very empowering situation because you're preparing to sell the thing and um, i think that if there could be a series of trucks that bring in food you know at a discount because it's stuff that the farmer couldn't sell otherwise you know those could be prepared into you know pre-packaged almost tv dinners but fresh each day that go into the inner cities and actually compete with value meal dinners, you know, so within seven or eight dollars a person. And that's not the dollar meal now, but, you know, that prepares them and sends them out in trucks. And I bet people would eat from those trucks if they were good. Big meatball, you know, with cabbage and kale or something like that. I, I don't know. Is that at all like prepared food? Uh, future i you know i don't know what to say to that i think that uh i think that there's a real uh learning uh cur a real educational component to that that has to happen before you're going to successfully implement a program like that say in a population that is not familiar with those kinds of foods i want it i bet i could survive just give me a little place to get the farmer (laughs) stuff i will prepare i mean i think i think that people have talking inner cities now you know compete against the mcdonald's and the white castles by parking a truck in front of their drive-through. <laughs> well, you know, they do that in t- Berkeley. It would, it would be the most nutritious uh, meal in the world. They have uh, that, actually, in Berkeley. I love it. It's uh, so subversive. Michael, go ahead. I'll tell you. I went to school in Philadelphia where, before the University of Pennsylvania got rid of all the all the food trucks, that's how people ate mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. West Philadelphia. Yeah. Sure. And I met with, again, the same farm who was is aggregating from Vermont, is talking about doing something like this. It's exciting. And I told my boss about three weeks ago, that I'm quitting and I want to start my own salad truck. <laughs> but I, I do think that I you're, want to that you're, you're on something. And I, I think there are, are ways, and whether La Marquetta Project on, the, on Park Avenue and 114th Street can help be that, where you're actually, there's cold storage, there's other store, there's storage mm-hmm. facilities there, mm-hmm. there's going to be a commercial kitchen space, yep. a way to create jobs for the local community and get healthy mm-hmm. food out there. And that's one, just one part of the, part of the project. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. I think there's already quite yeah. a bit of processing capacity in New York City. That one of the this guard, this farm to factory project we're working on right now. One of the companies we're working with is called Gourmet Boutique, and they produce salads for the retail market. And we're just trying to get them to source the ingredients from those salads locally. 
and those salads will sell in grocery stores on shelves and things. So, and you don't know, you know, they could have surplus capacity and you're thinking about how do you get that food into the neighborhoods that need it. And how do you, but also how do you encourage the neighborhoods to actually you know, to buy, buy it. it. And this, I mean, the project in Berkeley that a friend of mine sent a link to was they had a food truck and first it was sort of a mobile food truck and then people weren't really finding it. So now they're parked like outside of a, you know, of a city park and where there's ball fields and stuff. And they're, you know, they do serve quite a few meals, but they're, and it's more of a grocery store. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have some prepared yeah. foods, but they also have a grocery store. Is it people's? No, it's not. It is. It's people's grocery. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and it's, it has been mixed success. Mm-hmm. Um, they have not been able to turn a profit on this yet. And there has been a lot of sort of neighborhood mm-hmm. kind of um, wariness about mm-hmm. some of the products that they're selling. Yeah. And a lot of times people don't actually know what to do, how to cook these products. I don't think that's and the thing. I think you people want it to be don't ready. You think it, it has to cook. be food ready. I hate to say it, but once my, I mean, when I but grew then how up. how do you keep that cost down? I grew up in New York City. I was born in 1972 here. My mom and I relied on the coffee shop. You know, George Kirkostas, <laughs> Nectar Coffee Shop, yes, 79th and Madison. <laughs> yeah, he was really part well. of the family. He yeah. knew what I would want. He would look at me and be like, French toast and French fries. I'm like, <laughs> you got me. I mean, he was a real part of the family. And, um, yeah. but then, you know, what happened is now the Mama Fuku Sambar, I mean, there's, Pizza so now places. you have all these other comfort food places. And you eat for 6 $7. I mean, you can get a margarita pizza at Roberta's for $7 and a glass of wine. That's a great meal. No, you can't. Yeah, you can. <laughs> margarita pizza here? I don't know. $7. It's like 14 bucks. No, not the margarita. Oh, okay. See, they keep corrected. one thing super cheap. I would, I would look at, and Michael can speak to this too, when you're thinking about how to get that food out there and for people to trust it, we have this intense network of bodegas, these corner stores around the city. We're trying to figure out how to get the fresh food on shelves mm. in those stores, working with the Department of Health and Green Market and others. And I think that looking at that as an outlet for prepared foods that are affordable, that are fresh. Yeah. I mean, and, but also that requires a lot of storage capacity. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, a lot of refrigeration. Uh, you have to be way up to code. You mm-hmm. have to have a lot of food handling uh, expertise when you're talking about prepared foods. And I think that's that's something that has, I suspect, been a real discouragement, um, f- especially for places like bodegas. I mean, there's a place in I live on the Upper West Side, and mm-hmm. there's a place in my neighborhood that sells tamales on Saturday mornings, and they are fabulous. <laughs> and they make about 200 tamales, and they sell out by noon, and they're just sensational now i would love to see you know a more to more than just tamales mm-hmm, they're like they mm-hmm. keep them in a big plastic bag in a barrel okay yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> i love that idea though that's every good. bodega and every yeah Carvata's. i think that's a great idea because as we as we all know there's a real food desert in the sense that there are not real large-scale grocery stores in and a lot of many neighborhoods well, i can tell you that um the wholesale green market red jacket orchards and the department of health and mental hygiene healthy bodega initiative in the next couple of weeks, we're going to kick off a campaign in Bed-Stuy suppl- with Red Jacket supplying 10 to 13 bodegas um, with farmer's products. We're going to help. we got a grant from the USDA through the Farmer's Market Promotion Program Fantastic. to actually create design marketing materials. Uh, and Department of Health, Mental Health will actually do some, will advise, to uh, provide the technical assistance on what it means to how on to store, store properly. Yeah. Yeah. And Red Jacket also, because they want their products to look properly <laughs> on the shelves and, mm-hmm, and sure. from the juices, what, what have you. And and many of the, of the bodegas, they really want to do it. And they, they know that the customers will, will be there. 
Yeah. We, we and, know that. We have markets in communities. And also, if you're working with a community store like that that already has the relationship with yeah. its customers, yeah. then you're going to have a much better prospect for sell-through. Right. And a, have, yeah. a limited amount of those. Yeah. It might take six months, but in six months, mm-hmm. every single one of those places could have been visited three times yeah. in yeah. preparation of the USDA visit right. or the protocol. Right. You know, I mean, there's still limited numbers. We should remember that we have another guest who's joining us by phone. Oh, yeah. You want to get him on I'm the thinking, line? Jack, maybe let's call Patrick Manning and, and get him in there. Hey, Patrick Jack, uh, I remember mom. a day when you would have found out what percentage of U.S. agricultural output is <laughs> exported. I now actually, you're just I have in my there. notes I do here. know that the margarita pizza is $8. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jack. I also can tell you that... Um, Let's see. That's still I learned cheap, so Katie. much. I and mean, I think too cheap. that we should we should think it's not just what's being exported out of the country. It is the fact that there's so much produce produced in California. Yeah. And here in New York City, we know right now we could not feed New York City year round from the region, but we right. could do a heck of a lot more. And, 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 and we're competing with yeah. that. We also know that about seventy percent of the apples we consume in this country, whether through juice or through right, uh, are from here. Are from China. China. Are from, from China. China. So we're exporting it's crazy. Products and so insane. We import an enormous amount of juices, definitely. I realize um, that my contributions always to these conversations are, are short-sighted because when we started Heritage Foods, like I just had a U-Haul truck. I mean, violating every <laughs> HACCP plan That's in the right. book. That's just right. driving in the summer, totally. hoping there was no traffic on the Lincoln Tunnel, yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah. get through, make 17 deliveries, and by 2 p.m., no piece of meat had been in there for more than 10 hours, you know, and it was going to be fine. And there's just something cool about pushing something through. But obviously, you guys come from more strategy. So when you do turn, a very big thing turns. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm more tactical, which is just like get a truck oh, and a small well, we got to be tactical, though. We got to be tactical. Will, will be tactical. You, my background is your background. Driving yeah. up, meeting farmers in, in Kingston. Yeah. And driving down lamb in the back of my car and okay. delivering it to Red Hook. <laughs> uh, and I actually had to re- I have my staff remind me on it constant basis <laughs> that, that's how. that we're not allowed to cut so many corners anymore because <laughs> green market is out in the it's forefront kind of the and, and, now. and uh, you know we food safety is something we are very conscientious about and it, it is really crucial because as soon yeah. as someone gets sick from a farmer's market yeah no no you don't all you need that. is that's industrial eggs but you know um, uh, heritage foods yeah. and who knows you know i always worry about the middlemen you know that the new york times or people like in high places like always question the middleman it's always his fault if if a market it can't be created it's always his you know and yet it's it, it's interesting i mean the middleman has a tough time i mean the rothschilds the medicis they were merchants Yes. That's what that family was. Mm-hmm. They had pigeons that would communicate if, if, if something, <laughs> they did. if They'd there was a pigeons. crash of a yeah. boat somewhere. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's a very interesting thing because you sign your name to something, you go up or down with the ship, just like the people you're working with would. So, you know, it's a, it's a shrinking market, this kind of... Uh, but it's, it's a necessary market. I mean, we are, yeah. we're working on this farm-to-factory project and... You know, the the folks we want to serve, they're not all going to go someplace and pick something up. And it's a real struggle. I think in some ways it's easy, easier to get things from upstate New York into the city. But those last couple miles are right. so hard yeah. getting the, from the it market It almost to doubles the, door. the cost of our trucking. If we were to deliver in New, that's why D'Artagnan and mm-hmm. so many places are in New Jersey. Yeah, it's yeah. that one stop. Yeah, that, oh, yeah. it's huge. And then imagine Long Island and then Shelter Island. Well, I mean, to buy a fresh to, hamburger there. Let's talk there. to Patrick Manning. Jack, do you have Patrick on the phone? Oh, we're going to take a little break. 
Okay, we need to Pat I need a refill signaling anyway. to be madly. We'll take like a two second break and come back with Pat Manning. Can and I then, follow you? And I have some really interesting <laughs> statistics. Beware the Ides of March. <laughs> That's right. We'd all, if this was Roman times, we'd all be talking about that. That would, would be, be the be next wearing. big day. Yeah. 
Ides of March. But luckily, well, it's a big, it's a significant day for you. Are you still planning on launching your your new distribution yes. hub on the Ides of March? And the reason we Way have go, Beware the Ides of March on our website, is the like Smithfield, Purdue, those types of guys, <laughs> those are the people who have to beware. All right, because awesome. the only thing is, all that has to exist is a is a uh, is one you know, kind of reaction to something. It doesn't have to compete with it, but it has to prove that it can exist. No antibiotics, pasture, you know, genetically sound agriculture. You know, if one person can prove to exist, it forces them to over time steer just that little bit towards animal rights. I hope that's rights, the case, or, but I honestly do not. I mean, given what I heard over the three God, days God, you've been in crushed. DC, you're it such was a, a really. Buzzkill. It was. I know. It's such a buzzkill. Well, you know, the thing is, is we are all very high on this stuff on the coasts, and uh, the reality is, is that the the majority of of our commodity uh, products are grown in the Midwest, and those people are not changing. Um. So anyway, we have. Um, let's let's just reintroduce our guests and ourselves. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Katie Kiefer. You are Patrick Martins, and we we're have sponsored in the studio, by. And don't we're forget about the sponsor. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Sam. Uh, we're sponsored by Edwards in um, Wallace Edwards Wallace and Sons. Edwards and Sons in Virginia. Third generation cure master, an absolutely phenomenal product, and we're and uh, we're spending two days traveling around visiting slaughterhouses in Virginia. <laughs> so Sam is like gets in the motel, gets in the car, all that. <laughs> okay, um, but anyway, we're going to introduce our third guest to our panel today. We have uh, Christina Grace from the New York State Department of Agriculture, Michael, Her- Michael Herwitz from the Green Market, and joining us now on the telephone is Patrick Manning from Hudson Valley Fresh. Hello, Patrick. Hey, Katie. Sorry hey, to Patrick, keep you waiting. You? Good, apologies. Good. We've had such a lively conversation. It's been very difficult to to work in the next part of the program, but um, we've well, been we, talking. Well, we can because you've absolutely depressed me when I I think that you feel that way that we can't beat these guys. We I cannot beat them. We can. I think we can beat them, but I don't think it's going to be as much of a pushover as I think a lot of us would like to think. Don't, but don't I do tell, think. Don't, you know, don't tell most... Monsanto that because you know they had to shutter a lot of uh, a lot of our G- GBH. Um, um, manufacturing facilities when, when the people said, you know, I don't want artificial growth hormones yeah. in my milk. All I, of a sudden, they, they were knocked on their knees. Well, they got back up again, but... Yeah, they did, didn't they? <laughs> but actually, one of the most interesting things that came out of um, the discussions that I listened to at this ag conference was the idea of, instead of, you know, how the country is sort of divided into watersheds, and this guy was suggesting that we divide the country into food sheds that kind of mimic the gro- the the space of the watersheds. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such mm-hmm. a cool idea. And so for us, because we're in the Hudson Valley and we're in the Northeast and we could include even the North, uh, the mid-Atlantic states with our group in terms of how we transport food around and also where we're growing it and where it's processed. And so I thought, you know, since you're up there in the Hudson Valley... Um, what town are you in, actually, Patrick? Uh, I'm in southern Duchess County in a town called East Fishkill. Uh-huh. Oh, I right went off to, of the Connick Parkway. I went yeah, to Vassar, which isn't that far away. Really? I, and, uh, Patrick, I went to Vassar. You went to Vassar. Really? I saw that yeah, on your Yeah, well, email. great minds, right? What, so, year, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. what year were you? Uh, I was uh, 86. Wow. God, you yeah. children. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 86. Thank you, Katie. I'll take that. I was born that year. No, just I say that to Katie. No, no, I know it's not true. Oh my! But uh, yo, this this um, this person was absolutely right. Uh, the only thing that uh, that they might be a little bit wrong on is the fact that it's already happening. And um, you know what we're doing up here at Hudson Valley Fresh is recreating uh, 
the food shed, you know, which was once called the bread basket of, uh, you know, metropolitan area, in our case, the bread basket of New York City. We are now the food shed uh, of New York City, and um, Hudson Valley Fresh is capitalizing on that as a regional food system that actually is a business, that actually works, not a not just a name that's subsidized by government in order to look like they're doing something for the farmer, right. but actually putting a business model together. That, Are you saying you're making so money? Oh, yeah, we're making, uh, we're make, well, truthfully, it's a nonprofit. A, we're not making any money. The farmers right. are making He's money. He's talking to us it. from his Jaguar cell phone. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask, can you, break, uh, can you break down your distribution system for us? Well, I mean, first, that's tell the nitty-gritty. Tell most of our listeners probably are perhaps not familiar with Hudson Valley Fresh, and so therefore you are primarily a dairy business, right? Uh, primarily, but uh, really we're a regional food system, and I'll, I'll give you the... Um, the thumbnail sketch here. The, uh, we're a regional food system that uh, was put together by myself and another gentleman, a retired orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. Sam Simon. Uh, both of us were getting a little tired of uh, just hearing the talk about helping the farmer. And we thought, listen, can we put together a model whereby we save it. open space, we deal with a living wage for the farmer, mm-hmm. uh, we do a quality standard that is unheard of in America because you're going to, if you're going to dictate a living wage to the farmer, you've got to give something back. Mm-hmm. And, and really put forward a model of local and transparent that would bring a, uh, you know, to, that would be self-sustaining. So this regional food system would work without having government subsidies and without having, you know, to uh, just look, look like a branding, uh, you know, uh, offshoot of a tourism uh, bureau. Mm-hmm. Th- this is a real business. And we started with, you know, the uh, the one group that's in crisis more than any other, which is the dairy farmer up here. And uh, we said, listen, we will do to the dairy farmers, we said to uh, the possible members, listen, we will give you a living wage. We will pay you for your transportation of your milk. A lot of people don't realize garbage and milk are the two things you actually have to pay to get rid of. And a farmer has to pay, actually, to get gets a horrible uh, wage for their milk and then has to pay to get rid of it. Wow. We said, we'll pay for that. We'll pay you a, a, uh, a wage for the, you know, your conventional, what was considered a conventional commodity that is unheard of right now. But you have to go to milk tastings. You have to open your farms up to people who would love to show their children where they're, actually where their milk comes from or any of the products. But thirdly, you have to give a product that is the cleanest, freshest product in America, period. So we can say it, and then we can back it up. We That's have to a good be, point. You know, yeah, we have to be beyond organic. Because, I mean, I, mean, I or- will say in defense of that, um, you know, oftentimes because a farmer is local, they're, you know, encouraged to not succeed, you know, and, and right. we're like cheering them on to be fifth best in the nation or tenth best in the nation, when in reality, we should be focusing on the things that they could be number one or two at, you know, not absolutely. seven or eight. You're right, Patrick. You're absolutely right. Well, we, we have this idea that somehow agriculture is, is this quaint, um, you know, a quaint thing from our past, our American past, that, uh, you know, we will will just uh, cheer on from the sidelines and and not turn around. I mean, I turn the whole industry around. And seeing for New York, seeing we're, we're, we're speaking from New York, seeing that this is the number one industry in the state, and on top of it, food security uh, is national security, is true homeland security, then we should really be 
taking this very seriously and find a business model that works. We so, think we have found it with Hudson Valley Fresh. How do you do it? Give us a week in the life of Hudson Valley Fresh to understand exactly how much you move and how you move it. Sure. We started with about three farmers. We're now up to nine farmers. We have several farmers who are working right now very hard to get up to the quality standards that uh, we demand. We are an honest uh, broker. Uh, you know, we are member. Uh, we are member. Uh, we're not middlemen. Uh, we are member supported. Um, dairy farmers are on our board, and as a nonprofit, we give all the profits back to the uh, the farmer. Now we have expenses. I mean, we have drivers for our trucks, and we have an uh, ordering manager who gets paid. But most of this is um, well-meaning, uh, good-natured, and and passionate volunteers. Uh, and in the beginning, you have to have that in order to uh, compete with the big guys. Um, Do you pay for yourselves? I mean, how big is no. your staff? No one is paid. Uh, uh, no, no, uh, no one is paid except the ordering manager, those who take care of the, the distribution and the ordering. And uh, uh, who orders and, and how does that work? Well, we have, uh, we have been very successful uh, working down below with uh, Lions Tooth Media um, to get out there into the New York City into the New York City crowd and say, listen, if you want to help um, deal with open space, a living wage for a farmer, and actually give your kids something actually clean and fresh, then Hudson Valley Fresh is where you want to be, and you know, you're getting a, a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, we, have, uh, we have been very successful up here in our, you know, our local area, but New York City is where we have to move our milk, uh, where it makes sense to move our milk uh, instead of you know, getting New York City getting milk from the Midwest or even the South or the California, uh, you know, freeze dried and brought over and then rehydrated. So we have more than enough to more than enough in the Hudson Valley to take care of New York City and the surrounding areas. So we'll get people who will be contacting us from as um, as terrific as Foragers is there in Brooklyn to the you know the big boys like Whole Foods, which we're in. We're in Fairway. We're in. But the, what we what we have found that has been amazing is the coffee shops have been fantastic for George us because they, yeah we 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 I found that the coffee shops have found that our milk froths like no other, <laughs> and it's because of a combination of. Uh, of uh, from from somatic cell count and bacteria, which I won't make your eyes glaze over, to what we feed them—a certain mixture uh, that we feed them. Happy cows give happy milk, Patrick, and that's been our success story. Patrick, hi, this is Michael Hurwitz from Green Market. I have a couple questions for you. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Yourself? I want, I'm very well, thank you. I want you to know we are are big fans of, of what you're doing and want to be able to support you in any way possible. Um, and with that. You know, we have assumed operations of the wholesale farmers market as of last September. Yes. And if there's a way that that market can be either a hub for you or a way for you to bring product down into the city, uh, please let's talk about how that might we might we might be a resource for you. Well, this is huge, Michael, and I really appreciate you saying that. You know, we have totally totally understood the fact that green market has that the policy uh, and the individual markets to deal with the the one farmer versus our unique situation where we have nine member farmers. But uh, I know you're working on that, and to, to welcome us like that would be, um, would be very good for us and uh, hopefully for the green market. And so thank farmers. you very much for asking. Absolutely. Yeah, my other question is, is it just 
fluid milk, or do you also do some value added with with with, with the milk cheese? Well, butter, you, you bring that up because I got, I'm all charged up today because I was testing <laughs> a new product that um, we're we're still uh, we're still working on. We want to make sure it comes out. There'll be a follow up to our fluid milk, both our our um, our uh, white and our chocolate milk. That's uh, that's gotten a lot of kudos. We we also have half and half and and heavy cream, and but following up on our sour cream that just uh, appeared about a month ago and is flying off the shelves, a 40% sour cream. We're, we're working on cream cheese right now. So I was down in the test kitchen in an undisclosed location, several <laughs> floors under a nondescript silo, where I'm testing this cream cheese with others, and uh, I and think cream cheese will be coming bagels. out next. Is it well, going to be like, uh, by the great. way, a good name for your chocolate milk, I just thought of this, Yahoo. Support local <laughs> agriculture. Hey, it's one last thing. This is Michael. This is the last thing, thing I'll yeah. say because it's, it's not my show. But once you get that cream cheese, you got to let me know because it's the one thing we're not requiring our bakers to use locally because of uh, availability in the region. Oh, but if you have that product nice. ready to go, we can then require our oh, bakers to use it, which will just drive demand and, and, and fill some of that void. Can I get a, a standard green you, market? Uh, for red wattle pork because it's not available in the region. Let's <laughs> cross that bridge. Patrick, this is Chris. That opens up. A, uh, sorry, Patrick. This is Chris Grace here from the Department of Agriculture. How are you doing? How are you, Chris? I'm doing well. I want to ask you: Are you focused primarily on retail, or are you selling into any small processors? Oh no, we uh, we sell to schools and institutions. That's actually been terrific for us. From Good. from the uh, and we do bag milk as well. Okay. But from um, and individual um, individual serve containers, both uh, plastic and um, eight ounce for the schools. We're getting into private schools now. But from oh, from the big boys like uh, you know mm-hmm. the big institutions like Bard and and Vassar mm-hmm. and uh, and the like to um, to some of the private schools like the Ross School um, mm-hmm. to. Uh, some of the institutions, New York University uses our milk. Oh, uh, the Governor's Mansion, the CIA. Wow! Uh, yeah, 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 awesome. the Governor's Mansion and the Culinary Institute of America saying that we, we you know, we got the chops. <laughs> we must be doing something right. That's cool. Uh, bring us. We want to do the proteins for the White House and everything. Patrick, Amen. As your business grows, will you be able to lower your prices? Because I've heard, I know no. that there are. <laughs> what? I mean, come on, no. scale. It's not about that. But there are a you lot of people uh, who want to buy the product but can't bring it into their budget. Everyone thinks that well, the chicken is going to be cheaper if you raise 50 million of them. I'm, Chris, I'm, I'll are. tell you. I, was that Katie or Chris? <laughs> that was me, that was Katie. Katie. <laughs> oh, hey, Katie. You know, believe it or not, um, our economies are scale where, you know, if we shave off a cent here or a cent there, that's that's just that's proper business. But one thing that we have never done, and our president, Sam Simon, who is... is um, very passionate about this is we are not going to be in a competition to drive the price down on the backs of the farmers. Yeah. So what we do, no, I, and that's I, I, either they no, get it or allows, they don't get it. What that's what allows us as a nonprofit, however, because we're not paying for those big Porsches and you know my my trip to Cancun, we're we're directly <laughs> paying for the farmers. So if you are really going to pay for a trip, go somewhere other than Cancun. Yeah, actually, oh no, actually, Patrick, that was the fastest one I could think of. But you're absolutely right. Actually, I would I would you would find me in Sicily. Okay, but, good. Um, then maybe you can uh, <laughs> skim off the. Uh, no, I'm just wondering if the no, scale. No I understand you don't want to compromise price, quality or cheat the farmers. But. Our price. Uh, Katie, our price, if you go to any store, let's say if you go to Eli's or if you go to Zabar's, both who carry it, 
our price is is not that much more. Not exactly. that much more. I will say more comparative. Yeah. It's it's the change you have in your pocket okay. to to conventional fluid commodity. God only knows what's inside of it. Ultra pasteurized flavored water milk, or actually, <laughs> tell us how or you really actually the organic brands, which. I, I will tell you, as, as you well know, organic milk is not necessarily guaranteed that it's all organic in that milk. And our local and transparent is our big issue. We're local, but you also can come see the cow that gives you the milk within 36 hours, cow to store. That's Hudson Valley Fresh, not ultra-pasteurized, let's get a couple more weeks out of it so we can sh- ship it across the country. But don't worry, we'll put a cartoon cow on it smiling, and somehow everybody <laughs> thinks that's a healthy, safe milk. Well, we didn't, really, um, we didn't really touch upon this, but, you know, one of it is, I mean, a big issue that's been, uh, you know, a common thread throughout this whole conversation is scale. You know, and so I want to quote from uh, one of my favorite presidents, Abe Lincoln, in his uh, address to the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society in 1859. He writes, this is just uh, like five sentences, The ambition for broad acres leads to poor farming, even with men of energy. I scarcely ever knew a mammoth farm to sustain itself, much less to return a profit upon the outlay. I have more than once known a man to spend a respectable fortune upon one, fail, and leave it. And then some man of more modest aims get a small fraction of the ground and make a good living upon it. Mammoth farms are like tools or weapons which are too heavy to be handled. Ere long, they are thrown aside at a great loss. Well, so I always like that. Uh, you, Abe uh, could really write a speech. He was a good speaker. Right? Huh? I got to get this book. <laughs> it's still relevant. It's still relevant today. Totally. We've, we've had people say to us, you know, listen, would you do a private label for us? We love your model. We want to help the farmers. We want to really give them a living wage. Could you do this, and we'll we'll ship to um, Atlanta, or we'll ship all the way to uh, Austin? And we say no. But you know what we'll do? We'll create Austin Fresh. We'll help people create Austin Fresh yeah, and Atlanta great. Fresh or anything that's fresh great. and use the same template because our model works. And right. I think this is the model of sustainability that will uh, be what we're going to see in the next couple decades where we go back to what works and not this monoculture and uh, destroying our environment and our, our agricultural system at the same time. Absolutely. Well, well we, farmers, want, uh, we want you to come back uh, in-house, Patrick, for your okay, free uh, Roberta's Lunch, which all yeah. uh, guests get. And uh, whereas Katie and I are relegated just to a margarita pizza, no, just <laughs> we uh, we want I never you to, let uh, that stop me. To, uh, it is come. way too good here. And uh, thanks for being on. It's great energy, and I like the way you break things down. And it sounds like you're you know a vigilante that's starting mm-hmm. to get in the strategy and structure and all that. So it's it's amazing. Thank you for being on. Yeah, well, Patrick, it was great. Thank Please you, come back. Thanks, for real. gang, and and count on me. I will come back. Thanks for what you're doing with this. Uh, with this program. Well, we're, we're trying. Going. Trying to me, push the needle. If it's Sunday, it's the main course. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll take a break and we'll come back. You want to come back for one quick segment to wrap up and then bring on your publishing friends? Absolutely. Awesome. Oh, pa- Jack is like shaking his head. No. <laughs>
This is the main course. We're sponsored by Edwards Wallace and Sons, Sam Edwards, one of the great cure masters of Virginia. He's also a big uh, supporter of Virginia Things, and he has two retail outlets, two stores that probably have 10,000 SKUs, all of Virginia-made things, everything from little mini pigs to to uh, peanuts. Mini pigs. To, to prosciuttos, you know, like keychain type stuff, so... Um, anyway, Sam Edwards, thanks for sponsoring this edition of the main course. That's right. And here we are. We're Oh, by the way, we should mention also we're at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, 261 Moore Street. Absolutely. So um, uh, this has been a fascinating show. And what we have kind of created a tradition of doing is creating little uh, three-minute finales, you know, that synthesize in your own mind. So, I mean, you've been here. We've talked to Patrick, what you do, what Katie and I have talked about, what we all talked about. Give us a, uh, a parting... Uh, synthesis or is that too much to ask well let's 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 frame it a little better okay can i dive in yeah Yeah, nice (laughs) katie said you're coming back depressed from from washington and i'll i'm gonna i'll spin it and i'll say people are starting i think more and more having conversations about i mean how much conversation did you have three years ago about distribution issues never and have a borough president start talking about our food shed and distribution issues. And the Speaker of City Council talk about the need for processing facilities in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So who knows where we'll be in, in another mm-hmm. three years. Yeah, and I and, say the dinosaurs are going to have to... I said get out of the way it, or get on the I, bus. I mean, you know, you, you, you got to... You know, we're up against major forces and they have so much more money. Yeah. They have politicians in the back pocket, mm-hmm. including our... Our, our agriculture secretary and he might be saying the, the right things and I'm excited I, maybe Chris will talk about that Kathleen Merrigan will be here on, on Thursday at the new school um, and I think it's exciting what, what she what she says and what our president says and what the mm-hmm. first lady says and the chef that you their chef that you went, went and met with who knows what's going to happen but I think the forces are there mm-hmm. and uh, just like Patrick said about uh, hormones and milk Monsanto had to do what the people told him. So we'll figure out ways to pick up bricks and throw them. And uh, I'm excited about what the, what the future is going to bring. Tell us it, about a couple of the things that you see happening. I mean, big projects that you have, uh, well, things you're looking forward to. I, one of the things I'm very much looking forward to is this will be our first year of really operating the wholesale farmer's market in the okay. Bronx. And a group of that were once over 100 farmers that are now down, have dwindled down to 12. And just reinvigorating that market and redriving demand. And we just hired somebody to help farmers work on packaging and grading and mm-hmm. really begin to help them spec out for either both specialty specialty stores, schools, institutions, you name it. And that's what it, it, we need. We and need what's re, the re- difference re-education. between the two markets? There's the green market well, and how is the wholesale different? Wholesale farmer's market is for the, the mid-sized growers really who just, they want to sell wholesale. They want to sell by the box. They don't want to set up on a street. And, and, and drive for that retail dollar. Green market, traditional green market, is all about getting that retail dollar. It's cutting, it's, you know, I, uh, we're middlemen. Green market is, is a middleman. We take a certain percent, we set up the markets, and that's really what, what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the goal is for, for, for the traditional green market is for that farmer to take home as much of that profit as possible. So they're selling by the bunch. And the wholesale farmer's market, unlike the folks who are selling at Hunts Point, who sell by the pallet, sell by the by the by the the, the truck by load. the container yeah by the container these guys are selling by the box mm-hmm. right. um, by the tray you name it and that's been their their traditional uh, model hmm. and we're actually going to help them move 
palates and think think differently and, and to really get get food out there. So that's one thing I'm very excited about. Very excited about our youth education program that continues to grow and we continue to pilot in, in different ways. And where do you do? In, are those bringing people to the markets, to the farms, you to schools? All of the above. We mm-hmm. have about 5,000 kids that come through the markets on school tours where we divided, uh, created um, pre- and post-programming st- uh, with Columbia Teachers College to have it standards-based so that kids can actually do something in the classrooms before they come and then leave so they actually can retain more of the information. And giving tours is not easy because the tour guide has to walk backwards. Oh. And that's uh, <laughs> through the green market. Is and very and talk at the I'm same telling time. You, uh, we take farmers in, into, into classrooms and then also work with the chefs and, and, and do farm trips. So very excited about mm-hmm. that. And before I run out of time, I want to yeah. say one last take thing. Take your time. We were joking before about the trip to Cancun or Sicily or driving the, the, the Jaguar. And I have to say that somehow... This, in this country and in this, actually in this world, we really have devalued the farmer mm-hmm. and think that the farmer is supposed to be broke-ass. Yes. Am I allowed to say that? on Barely on, scraping yeah. by. Right? Yeah. And that they're not supposed to go on, on vacations and make, yeah. make a living. Right. Yeah. And this is insane. Good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Right? Mm-hmm. We need to be valuing the producers of our food. And no, yes. maybe they're not going to be the wealthiest, but... There's nothing, you know what? There's they no make reason good, they shouldn't be middle wrong class. With it. it has to yeah. be fair, and that, fair as margin well, has to also, get pushed further out. Exactly food right. security is a huge issue, and if we want mm-hmm. our food Absolutely. chain to be secure, we yeah. need to be buying I think from farmers. Farmers farmer right. should make between seventy to a hundred thousand dollars a year. At least, At that's least. a fair thing. At the end of everything, and I'm not <laughs> including their time. Like I, I, you know, I don't want to get completely crazy. I mean, I don't know what to say, but at the end of the year, once they've looked at their expenses, they should make. Seventy to one hundred thousand right. dollars, and if they work eighty-hour weeks, so do all of us. But they can't make twenty thousand. That's wrong. And that I, is the majority. And, and here's what people don't get: I spoke to a farm yesterday who grossed last year four hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and they weren't sure if they were going to be able to go back into farming next year mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of what they actually took home and put mm-hmm. in their put in their pockets. And it's right. a very good thing. And Carlo Petrini, who I you know worked dust to dust with for a year and a half, he says it's ironic that the very rich companies produce very bad food for the poor and get mm-hmm. rich. Meanwhile, these very boutique farmers produce food for the very rich, you know, and yet remain very and poor. Yet remain That's poor. Right. You know, prices should be able to double, which is why I say if you can scale your thing up, should the prices come down? No, they should stay the same. That turkey should get the same amount of land. The feed should come, maybe a few shavings, but in essence, the price will stay more the same well, I think than your not. market gets bigger when you can bring the, if your scale of production goes up and you can bring your price point down by even sometimes just a few cents, your market increases and you do end up selling more product. And I, yeah. that's the delicate balance, I think, of, of farming is yeah. to be able to yeah. keep your, you know, to keep your prices in line with where you can make the most money. Well, and Instead there's, of being a boutique. They're, you know, they're really, but there really is a reality that Americans need to understand that good food costs money and that they're yeah. willing to spend money on other things, on cell phones, on multiple cars, et cetera. Sneakers, yeah. and, and that food and their health is, is absolutely critical. I, I want to throw out a couple things that, yeah. that are kind of, I just think, when I started with the department almost three years ago, you know, I, I asked about regional wheat and flour. I asked about dried beans, and people glazed over and looked at me and said, New York State, come on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are seeing it. You know, we, are, we have 35,000 farmers. We grow a ton of vegetables. We are a dairy state. But we are, the grains are coming back. We have a deal, actually, where New York City schools are going to be able to source local beans in the fall mm. from 
a California company who we convinced that since they do so much business in New York, they should actually be sourcing and processing in New York State. They're called KidSmart, and they're going to be doing a frozen bag, ready-to-run black bean that Mm. can hit the school market. And it's amazing. That is amazing. You know, we have the restaurant show coming up. We're going to have green market wholesale farmers there. Basis is going to be there. Regional Access and Baldors will be there. And these are all folks. Jay Kings will be there. They're all sourcing local. They're all distributors sourcing local food. So when we talk about building infrastructure, some of the infrastructure is there. And it just needs to scale. Needs to scale. you know, five years ago, we couldn't say that. So it's and just awesome. Can I say one last thing? Sure. Chris gave me a little jab. Sorry, gave me a little jab there. One of the things I'm most excited about is what we're going to be doing with, with regional grains. Um, June Russell, who was our sort of inspections coordinator, really, who is transitioning to lead our, our strategic thinking. I like that name, June Russell. She is amazing. She's great. And <laughs> she has helped lead our initiatives over the past two years working with our bakers that we're now reintroducing our minimum requirement to use local grains. We're helping local mills get into into the program and and, and it goes beyond green market. Uh, in the early January, we brought some of the some of the best bakers in New York City to a private grain tasting with local- It was amazing. <laughs> with local grain growers and local millers to, to reinvigorate this industry. Because it's beyond just green market bakers. It's going to be have to really drive the demand mm-hmm. to have reintroduce this to our, so that every farmer is is corp, incorporating it into the rotation, mm-hmm. and then we can reintroduce yeah. successful mills in the mm-hmm, region. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. I think we should do the same show in like six weeks and Absolutely. have a different phone in guest. Maybe you know we mix it up like that. But we yeah. should have a twelve shows a year. Or, Absolutely. you know, 10 shows a year yeah. is what that would okay. come out to. That would be yeah. really good, and we could have farmers on, and we could have three farmers on, panel discussions. But this mm-hmm. is a real powerful thing, and I, I love the way we've come to, um, <coughs> excuse me, have a couple of uh, collaborations happen. Yeah, you know, I mean, people thing. are on air saying, up. "I want to meet you. Yeah. I want you to come to my place." I, I like that a lot too. Yeah. I think we could make that happen more. Well, we should wrap it up because I do have fabulous guests for the next hour. Christina yeah. Grace from the New York State Department of Agriculture. Thank you, Michael. It is always a great pleasure. Do you guys have Thanks websites? Patrick yes, Manning. Okay, thank uh, you. tell us. Our website is www.cenyc.org and just C E C E N Y C. Uh, .org. It's okay. the Council on the Environment of New York City, of which we are one program. Though as of March first, we are going to become Grow NYC. We can talk I about like that, that later. I love that. So you'll and come good. back for that. Yeah, absolutely. And tell us your website. Well, you're going to embarrass the heck out of me. I work for state government, guys. The website's horrible. It get, is www.agmkt.state.ny.us. We need a sound effect for that one, guys. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. So could we be something like www.newyorkfood.com? No, but we'll put you... Oh, that's very we'll nice, Jack. Jack. And he'll... Uh, He'll tag that properly so people can go there. And um, we'll, we'll be see back you in about five back minutes. Soon. Yeah. Bye bye. Thanks, guys. Oh, thank you. Guys. Oh, awesome. Great.
This is Joe Bastianich, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Wow. <laughs> that was very smooth, guys. Very smooth. <laughs> this is indeed the Heritage Radio Network. This is the main cool course. Thunder. Yeah, I liked that. And um, I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my co-host, Patrick Martins, is sitting opposite me looking soulful. And we're sponsored today by Edwards... Wallace Edwards and Sons. Virginia Ham. Virginia Ham, the very best in cured products. And this is the second hour of our show, and we're making a huge segue here from, yeah. from the food systems to the publishing I'll industry. Both give pleasure. 
Exactly. Well, what's more interesting? What's better than reading and, and eating? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so today we sleeping. welcome... That's we, the only well, thing. Yeah, With and sleeping sex. and sex, okay. then we're good. Um, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, so, um, Mr. White, you've taken your shoes off. How interesting. Uh, <laughs> hurt. My feet hurt. I'm breaking oh, in the shoes. Tells you. Okay, I see. They're brand new uh, Converse. Yes. So today we are welcoming um, Robert B. Wyatt otherwise known as Bob Wyatt. Um, nice. A, a publishing veteran and author. Um, and Bob is here um, after many, many years in sort of conventional publishing. Now, tell us what happened, Bob. You, you retired, and then you decided that you were going to get into um, not only writing, which I guess you'd wanted to do for a while, but also you self-published your books, uh, which I ne- was something I've you never, would never thought you would do. I've, no, I've never retired. I know. Retirement is for wimps, right? Well, it doesn't sound like much fun. It's so boring. Uh, no, I, I was fortunate enough to be hit by a truck. Ooh. Which was called? I've forgotten the name of the truck. It, was, it, was, <laughs> it didn't it, identify it, itself. It was, it was a time. furniture store. I do remember that, yeah, right right in the streets of New York, right? Uh, right in front of my apartment. Oh, my God. Hmm. And I didn't go home again for three months. Wow. The super turned off my computer and the lights. <laughs> and uh, so I had What a, was it, a garbage truck? Or a, I, I'd like to think of it that way. No, it was a furniture truck. It belonged right. to the furniture store under my apartment. Mm. Wow. Your, your delivery made me think you'd been hit by a truck metaphorically, but you were yeah, literally Literally, yes. But then I remember Broke I read on your... Broke my hip. Yeah. Uh, but it, it made me think, and it made me think more about publishing. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that with a pencil and my computer and some paper and a phone, I could do everything I've been doing for nearly 40 years in traditional book publishing. So I began helping out authors with their manuscripts, and they were primarily out-of-town people like Australia, India, whatnot. And I did that for several years, and then I decided to write some books of my own out of, yeah, out of the traditional way of publishing, because I'd done all of that, and I didn't uh, see any reason to use traditional publishers. I knew where the bodies were buried, and I didn't want mine with their bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, <laughs> on I went. Um, and I was helped by the authors I was working with, and I developed a barter system with a Pakistani author who helped me publish my first two novels. No kidding. He did all the hard stuff. His wife designed the jackets, uh-huh. and he helped s- set up the programs. And uh, the whole thing began all over again the last day of last year and the first day of this year when I published the first two books. Fantastic. Mm. And and just to introduce our second guest here, so you're going to be telling us a little more about self-publishing and how that's changing the game. And Johnny Saunders, you're from On Demand Books, uh, which is also known as the Espresso Book Machine. Um, and this is mm. a device which can download uh, books in the public domain, uh, print them and bind them and deliver them to the customer in about four minutes. Is that right? That's a pretty good way of describing it. Wow. Yes. It's an extraordinary piece of what? technology. Say that I mean, one more time. It's it's called the espresso book machine. It's Meaning it's made faster than an espresso? About the same time period, I guess. It's express. And it, it, it any book that is in the public domain. Um, and so, f- as an example, today you brought us um, uh, When the Going Was Good, an Evelyn Waugh novel, which I'm actually not familiar with. Um, and that's not in the public domain. So we, we also have uh, permission to print oh, and so produce there copyrighted are states books as well. That give you, and do uh, our authors coming to you with their books and saying, we want to publish through you? 
Publishers are coming to us. Publishers. Authors are coming to us. Sites are coming to us. Uh-huh. Lots well, of different we'll people. We'll talk about that amazing, in a second. Yeah. But it, it produces a book and a, and a very handsome-looking book, I might add, uh, in about four minutes. And what are these retail for? Well, they would sell for whatever the bookstore would want to sell it for. Typically, it would be the cover price or mm-hmm. the same price as uh, you know the mass-produced and traditionally distributed paperback. And it looks great. I mean, you know, it's it's a paperback book. It's a paperback original. It uses the same. <laughs> it's well, it's it's pretty interesting when you consider the fact that it uses the same files to print the cover and to print the book block itself that the offset printer would use uh-huh. and therefore the finished product will end up looking more or less identical I, I like to say it's indistinguishable from the traditionally published version well for me as somebody who's not I mean I was in the industry but not sort of in the actual publishing house it, I, I would never know the difference it's interesting no, consumers and readers can never tell the difference between the books publishers They'll take, they'll pick it up, and, and they'll put on, you know, they'll get calipers out and an eyepiece yeah. out. And, well, the and really paper p- for the um, for the binding is a little for the binding. The what do you call this? The block, the cover stock, the or, cover stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems a little thinner, maybe. Well, it depends. Actually, but every type of book. Or, what do you think, Bob? What's your? I I do think it's a little bit thinner, but uh, hey, it's a perfect the, book. The quality <laughs> of the printing and the and the oh, jacket yeah. looks great. I mean, it's beautiful. Right. Now, what about your books, Bob, that you've had self-published? What You use just traditional technology for that, and I saw that you're distributed by Ingram, which is a big distributor. They made the books. Oh, they make the books for yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a new service called Lightning Source, and they manufacture the book for you and distribute it. And that's how it gets on uh, Amazon and Barnes uh-huh. and Noble and whatnot. And it, does it? Are you able to get it into bookstores? Because I know in the past, self-publishing has often meant that you were relegated to just maybe the Amazon uh, outlet, um, but otherwise it was up to you to print your books and then sort of hand sell them into bookstores. You didn't get any widespread distribution. I'm still in the early stage on my book. It's still still developing. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in a bookstore for the holidays in Woodstock, New York, where I sometimes live. So I had some distribution on my own. But right now, I have to do it on my own. Otherwise, it's essentially internet. But I, yeah. I have good news for Bob. We have a partnership with Lightning Source and Ingram. And so we're able to distribute Lightning Source titles through our machines. So anywhere one of our machines is installed, your book is available. So you actually are distributed in bookstores. You just didn't realize it. Jam in the mm. Box is available. That's right. <laughs> the Fluffies in the Box is available. It is available. If, if any <laughs> listener chooses to go to a bookstore with an espresso book machine, he or she can have it printed in three or four minutes. So Two John- books by Robert B. Wyatt. That's and then right. that generates that generates a, a royalty to you, just as any standard book sale would. That couldn't hurt. Right. Now, can this be any book? And the, the book machine is similar to, uh, usually I could describe it as an ATM for books. It uses digital files, so nothing is physically stored within the book. There's a printer matched up with sort of a finishing unit, so to speak. The printer prints the book block. A cover okay. printer separately prints a cover, uh, a color cover. And then the machine combines the two and cuts them down to the proper size using a fancily dubbed robotic arm. Not since Gutenberg's uh, press have we gotten I'm news like this. I'm telling you, really do a, interesting uh, technology. I want to do a, a flip book. You, you, you could, any, any book that's smaller than the paper that goes into the machine can more or less be made. So, it, so uh, how does uh, an average person get their own book published then? Where do they go? I mean, how do they access the technology? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, the average person typically would use an existing self-publishing service. For example, the lightning source distribution model that, through Ingram that uh, Bob was talking about has an agreement with us that enables us to print their books. So 
a pub a, a writer with with a with a novel or a book could go to Lightning Source, have their title uploaded, and now now it's available for distribution. Going forward, and one of the major uses of the machine right now at the various installations is for people to come directly to the store or to the store's website and uh, enable their books sort of to get uploaded that way and then added to sort of our network of content and made available for distribution. Hmm. In fact, we're doing, so I don't want to talk too much at length about this, but we're doing an interesting uh, partnership with Author Solutions, who's a major online self-publishing company. Mm-hmm. They, they're more or less an umbrella organization for a number of uh, self-publishing sites that have all been, that have all been brought together. And they have a back-end self-publishing editorial service called WordClay. And we've partnered with them that, that allows WordClay to be added to the websites and on-site computers at our installations so that when someone goes to one of these bookstores or goes to the website for the bookstore, they can use the WordClay editorial services to have their book created, really. I mean, it's a whole suite of services. You can have a cover made, table of mm-hmm. contents, typesetting, um, copy editing, any, any level of editorial services you need. And then the book automatically is made available on the machine around the world. Hmm. Well, that is incredible. So, Bob, how do you think this is going to change? How does a technology like um, on-demand books, how how is that going to play into what's happening in the publishing world in general now? Is that going to sort of... I don't know. Could I ask Johnny a question first? Yeah, of course. Uh, I I read about these machines all the time, and I assume that they look like elements with, uh, or elephants with parts hanging off. (laughs) And I I have friends at Harvard who say there's a machine there, but where can I go find one? Yeah, good question. Uh, There are about, there are 32 locations right now um, around the world. Two thirds of them more or less are in North America, and then we have some in Australia and the UK. And actually, the Library of Alexandria in Egypt has one. I love this technology. (laughs) This is like IMAX 20 years ago. I know, right? Photomat 30 years ago. I love it. It is a new library in in (laughs) Alexandria. Hopefully, it won't burn down like the last one. Well, if it does, the files are all stored digitally in some cloud. Yes, exactly. They're in the the ether, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, but the machine actually, the um, elephant... Metaphor is not a bad one, although it's it's improved over time, so it's more like a baby elephant now. The the uh, the, the newest model that we have, which we, we call our sort of commercial rollout model, it's about three feet by three feet, a little really? under that. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty small. It's not that much bigger than a regular. It's about the same size to me as like the copier we had in my office. That's right. I, I mean, I looked at the video on YouTube, and it looked like a just a standard size office copier. Um, except that it had, you know, in inner workings of more, um, shall we say, more sophistication uh-huh. in the sense uh-huh. that it has the cutting, the ability to cut the paper and also to do um, print different types of stock. That's right. So, but it was, and, and it has glue. Yes, the, and it has glue in a, in a, in a well-protected hot pot. That, that, yeah. Uh, well, we're in Brooklyn right now. Where... Where's the nearest one? Well, the nearest one from here is probably the Harvard Bookstore in Canada. Oh, no. It's sort of shameful that New York does not have one. We, we had one on exhibit at the New York Public Library in 40th Street. Um, and actually, there's a uh, bookstore in Soho, um, that's McNally Jackson. Oh, that, sure. That will yeah. be getting great one. Great bookstore. And um, how much I love is McNally it? Jackson. Did, did we talk about this? Outfit. How much is it per page? Or Oh, to, well, to print the book itself, the costs of to the bookstore... Um, is a roughly a penny a page. That that would include the paper, the cover stock, the glue, the toner, mm-hmm. the ink. Wow! And how many pages would they have to print to pay for the machine? Oh, uh, well, that, that's a difficult sort of uh, financial question. That's that that just 
you would have to amortize the cost, cost of the machine across however many books during the lifetime of the machine that you're going to print. And some books generate a higher margin to the bookstore than others. Yeah, because remember, you're charging the finished product as being charged off at the same cover rate as a traditionally produced book from a publishing company. Yeah. So the bookstore has a built-in margin to That's that right. to that price. Yeah, so it, it tends to be, I would say, um, financially a better um uh, sort of a better system for the bookstore than the existing distribution model because there's no supply chain costs, there's no inventory, there's no handling, and you're not stuck with uh, with returns. Right, publishers aren't stuck, which with is a returns. really big. How many? Yeah. Uh... Or bookstores can be stuck with returns. Sometimes a lot of publishers. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but a lot of publishers, uh, you know, buy sell books and then will not accept returns. So well, it depends on the condition of the books and under under the terms in which they bought them. Yeah, but it, so. it is it is sometimes the case. How many living repairmen will there be for these machines? <laughs> Are you looking for a new career, Patrick? No, but I'm wondering if I if I buy one. It's you a whole know. new revenue it's a, source. Yeah, it's a very apt question. We have a handful of technicians right now that go around servicing the machines, and and we know, being a young company, that that our success depends entirely upon the machine working well and our servicing these machines to the sort of satisfaction and beyond satisfaction of the customers. So our sure. technicians, I, I love our technicians. They're pretty amazing. They so can go out and fix anything. Uh, technicians, Six or eight? It depends on the day of the week. Now, I think we, <laughs> some some are, are work from our manufacturer. Um, some are under our organization itself. There's three or four. Does it relate to other technologies? Like if someone can repair something else? Could they then, or is this a whole new thing? It's a pretty, it's, well, there's the sort of two questions in that. I mean, in terms of standard maintenance of the machine, any entry-level clerk can handle it for the most part. It's similar to a copier. You have to load the paper into the mm -hmm. machine. You have to empty the trim receptacle. So when, when it cuts the book to the proper size, a certain level of, of paper is then produced, so that has to be thrown out. You have to fill the glue pot with little dry glue pellets. So there's a handful of things that, aren't terribly difficult to do. I have no uh, mechanical acumen whatsoever, and I'm able to do it. So now when something <laughs> happens, then a technician will show up. And it's the same, probably the same skill set as printing repair. Do you do you have a background in that? No, thing? no. I'm uh, not looking for a job. I was going like, to ask for your I resume. Job, but, um, <laughs> let me ask, what was, in terms of the technology, the thing that was the biggest trip up? Like what thing took the most time? Like when you look back upon the building of the machine that you're like, oh, that we finally figured out, you know. That's a really interesting question. I think it's sort of ironic that the trickiest part of the machine is is really the printer that prints the paper and, and is handled by the machine. And, and it, one of our mechanics described it to me in a way that made sense. He said, when you're printing a book, say a 300-page book, the espresso machine takes that book and sort of treats it as one unit. And it has a few things it has to do to it to make it come out the slot, sort of warm in your hands, a, a nice, freshly printed book. But the printer, if it's, say, a 300-page book, has 300 little units to deal with, all those different pages that are shifting and flying through the printer. So it's sort of amusing that the printer tends to be the aspect of the technology that requires uh, that, that sort of, I guess, touchier to handle rather than the machine itself. Hmm. So it's not, it's not the administration of the glue, it's not the cutting of the pages, that is potentially the trip up. It's actually making sure that the book prints the pages sequentially. Yeah, and, and that they feed in a register in, that is you know identical to each page that precedes or, or follows. Well, and we've all had printers jam on us and yeah, paper. Of so, so that that that's more the. But you know, I don't want to paint a picture of the machine as though it's constantly jamming or anything. Well, of it's, course not. It's a pretty. It's a. It's a. <laughs> 
we'll exhibit it in book fairs. And if there is, there's three guys that <laughs> will it. fly over. I'll stand there. No, but I'll I'll stand there and be showing how the machine works, and and it will like you know go three days straight just printing book after book after book after book. I think a full-time security guard. I would want that to com- be accompanied by a repairman who just stands there. I'll provide him a chair. Are you are you finding that publishing companies are supporting you or are they feeling more threatened by... I think publishers support us. Is that, uh, there's, you know, the, I, I'd be interested actually to hear Bob's take on this as a publisher and former publisher. I Publisher, the, the industry itself has changed so considerably over the past few years that I think they're more open to new forms of distribution. Uh, a few years ago, I think we would have had a harder time talking to publishers and convincing them to give us access to their files and give us access to print their books for them on demand. They'd say, well, we have a system for distri- distributing books already, and it works just fine. Right. I think now with the growth in ebooks, with the sort of some of the economic challenges that the industry is facing, they're a little more willing to discuss with us. In fact, more than willing, because when you make the case for it, it makes a lot of sense. It eliminates returns. It eliminates all that sort of inventory and supply chain costs. takes a whole chunk of the logistics question out of it and allows you to better track sales. It generates revenues and royalties to the publisher and to the author that might otherwise get lost to the used book market. Hmm. They're, they're actually more than willing. They're desperate. Yeah. They I were, didn't want to say that. Well, I... <laughs> Uh, I'm saying it because it's true. I would think so. Uh, the book industry, I suppose, is what the United States Congress is to government. Uh, it's, may I say, a mess. You can use that word on radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's a mess. It is a mess. Yeah. No, it's, it's, a tr- it's, you know, and it's a business that I've never, in the eight years or nine years in which I did public relations for the book business, I never understood the business it model. It makes no it sense. It never made sense it, to it me. It hasn't made sense since they started having returns in the 30s. Mm. If you can't sell a book, you can return it to the publisher. That was a, a depression measure, which we, we should turn over that depression measure and uh, not allow returns. But with uh, self-publishing and print-on-demand, a lot of that is eliminated. Mm. And I, I have a great hope for the for the book in the future. I think it's going to change drastically in every way. Uh, I don't think ebooks are the answer. I don't. The answer is something I think that we don't even know about, mm-hmm. and it could happen in a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to. I certainly wanted to ask what impact you think ebooks and the, and the growth of the of the reading device is having on traditional methods of publishing and and certainly the uh, the actual paper book business I, I'm, not, I'm not sure when in my early days in publishing I was in the paperback business and we had a lot of giant bestsellers which would we'd go back to press for a million copies a week routinely yeah and I'd get on the subway and I would see everybody lined up reading a book I'd published say the thorn birds Everybody was sitting there. I, I felt yeah. like you know, I was. You must really have felt doing, like a million bucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I felt great. Like I was doing my job. <laughs> now I get on the subway, and everybody's got some kind of device. Now I don't. Somehow I don't think they're reading novels or books. I think they're doing something else with them. I don't I, know what it well, is. My, my sister-in-law um, has a Kindle, and she is a voracious reader. Always has been, and she reads uh, books. You know, in by the by the multiples uh-huh. per week on the Kindle. Well, I think people are reading, uh, and every new new way of reading, I, I think, adds to more readership. Really, 
And how does that? What kind of impact does that have on the author's royalties? I've I've never quite figured out the well, still being the math out. of that. Is yeah. that why you haven't written any books recently? Exactly. Because I mean, if they can't pay me a really big advance, <laughs> yeah. Well, with my two books, the Jam in the Box Can and the I Fluffies, and surely, uh, um, I get a full royalty. Yeah, because you. But I'm also it. paying for the printing and the design and, and the distribution. Yeah, all of that. Which at this point is. Well, we hope going to be plugged into Johnny's machine. Just allow our machine to sell it. <laughs> well, that's uh, this is a very good meeting we're having today. Yeah, uh, this is our second hour in which we have put together yes. business partnerships. <laughs> I'm really I like loving it. this. You and should I charge like, a commission. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we should make you sign a contract before you come on I the show. I can't believe my broker side didn't kick in already. <laughs> right? I know. Patrick's a meat dealer, in case you didn't know that. So he's all about brokering deals. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. The animals. Tell us about uh, Jameson's two cats. Well, they have a book of their own. They have, oh! their, they have their own adorable little Do you know, book. it's so funny yeah. you say that because uh, I am trying to write a 30-act Broadway musical that stars my Scottish Terrier, West, in all the scenes. Um, I have so far only have uh, a couple of the scenes. They're big. You're, you're kidding. No, no are no, you kidding? No, not. Patrick can... Yeah, I'm hoping do to do this, yeah. and if West is, you know, if I can write it fast enough, West can star in it. I, I, I urge you to watch, uh, uh, this is a total aside and a complete non sequitur, but I urge you to watch the movie Coraline. Is it, that about Coro? No, but it has Coro in it, and it has a cast of about 60 um, Scottish what? Terriers. Oh. It's an animated, no, it's an animated film, and it it's so clever and What's wonderful. What's it called? Coraline. It came out about it's a year and a half Award. ago. Yeah, I'm sure it's it a, is. It's an absolutely fantastic film. I watched it with my daughter last night. Loved every single minute of it. But it, I just Scotty's won Westminster, by the way, and we didn't. We were <gasps> remiss in not mentioning this. Oh my god! I was in Rhode I Island. I usually work the visiting show. you. I was in yeah. Newport, and two people saw my dogs and were like, "You know, they just won. I forget what it was. Uh, some other." Not Westminster. I yeah, because no they Westminster. Call it. I don't. It didn't. just happened. Yeah, and the Scotty won. They oh, really? Say not in ten years, which is seventy dog years. Have they found <laughs> a? Uh, thank you for Weston Red. Oh my goodness! So well, tell us about Fluffy. Yeah, let's go back and talk about your books. Okay, then, Bob. Jam in the Box is a novel about a Hudson Valley bookseller who, in the first paragraph of the book, finds his wife dead in bed with him, and she is left behind an unopened Macintosh carton, and he is not very coherent with uh, technology. This is technology. the first sentence in the book. May I? P- please do. Jameson James turned over in, his, in bed. His wife's eyes were open, but something of their blueness was gone. So he wasn't kidding. No. Nope. <laughs> that was the first sentence. <laughs> I had an agent turn it down on that basis. Oh, but- come on. <laughs> really? Let's not talk about agents, okay? Let's talk about Jam <laughs> Even though in the you box. and I met through a wonderful agent that we both love. This is love, true. So. Anyway, um, so he wakes up and um, he's left this box and two cats. He doesn't even know their names, so he, he calls them both Fluffy. And they run, when he's served them food, they come running. So he just calls them Fluffy all the time. And as I wrote the book, they began taking on more and more of the story as if maybe they should be telling the story. But they couldn't because this was Jam's story and his, his quest for happiness and his unhappiness with the cats. So when I finished Jam in the Box, the Fluffies demanded that they have a say in it. 
And uh, so the male and the female, which Jameson doesn't even know what their sex is. And he doesn't know it until, of course, they have a litter. And he realizes that they're actually male and female. Um, but it gave me a chance to have a sort of a gimmick uh, for the fluffy book, which is a, actually a novella. It's only 78 pages. What would that cost in your process? 78 pages would be about 78 cents. I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because it's as as others would like it, because it's uh, costs ten dollars if you buy it elsewhere. But it gave me wow. a ch- chance to have a wonderful dedication page, which has been very useful, which I'll hand to Katie to examine. In honor of our fellow cats alive and living differently, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's an, <laughs> a full page long list of cats who obviously have figured in your life. There, there are over a, a hundred names there. Yeah. And I saw that, of course, as a hundred customers for my book. Absolutely. <laughs> the names are great, too, by the way. I won't go through them. But they, <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty amazing. <laughs> really charming, yeah. Well, it just goes to show you how nutty people get about their, their pets. Oh, Absolutely. tell me. Self-included. Well, we should probably take a uh, two-minute break, and then uh, we have a final you know, 10, 12 minutes to wrap up. Fantastic. Oh, my God, we barely scratched the surface. back with uh, Bob Wyatt and Johnny Saunders. Bob Wyatt, a uh, longtime publishing 
uh, expert and may I don't even know how to, how many words to use to describe your expertise in the publishing industry other than that. And old um, hand. Oh yeah, an old hand in the business. That's right. And Johnny Saunders, who's a considerably younger hand in the business, but uh, has his hand firmly on the tiller of new technology and publishing, which is kind of an exciting development. Um, so we were talking about uh, self-publishing versus uh, instant publishing versus the Kindle versus the tradition. And uh, Bob, I think you summed it up well. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not very helpful to people. Um, well, I think that out of the mess comes the new directions. Yeah, and clearly, sure. Johnny's company, uh, On Demand Books, is is pushing towards those new directions. Um, self-publishing, I think, is something that nobody took seriously 10 years ago and now is uh, becoming a real force in the marketplace. I, I'd like to chat a little bit more about that before we wrap it up because we do have to say goodbye shortly and, and make way for our next program, Cutting the Curd with Ann Saxelbeach. Curds. Way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think self-publishing is in one way a, a serious part of the model in the 21st century for writers. I mean, for we famous learn, writers, we can all learn from it. Really, for famous writers and new writers, mm, because of true. the internet, you're able to market yourself significantly better. You don't have to rely upon that the marketing services of the publisher anymore. I mean, right. uh, You could imagine a, a, a writer like Stephen King just going into the publishing business for himself and 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 probably doing better in a way than he does right now in yeah, terms of well it's Rice kind of like Damien Hurst who uh, sold all of his own work at auction cut out his gallery middleman and made a fortune right yeah. so I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt because you, Hearst, Bob, you were going to say something I mean that's not the thing the right don't you need connections no I, I think it's a good analogy um, but he was a nobody you, you oh can, no he was very famous already but he but was you, the guy who did the floating cow in formaldehyde well I mean <laughs> could there be a Stephen King out there absolutely who doesn't even get that thing you know even though he's publishing his own book no the, the I mean doesn't anyone could say that the power of the internet is that it enables you to right. market yourself and make a name for yourself in ways that would not have been available 10 years ago. In, so, in a way, it's it's the truly democratic uh, way to market yourself because you're not you're not dependent on the your position in the catalog of your of your publisher or on their public relations office or on their marketing team and whether or not they they bother to sell the book through into into smaller stores or whatever it is or you know if Barnes and Noble doesn't pick up your title you're screwed or something right. like that. I mean, right? It's you know, the eyes. Sort of the eyeballs of the yeah. people, for better or for worse. That's but, right. But when, when we talk about books, we don't have to talk about an object with paper in it that's four by eight inches. The books are all over the place, and we're having greater access to them. I read a lot of Project Gutenberg books. Uh, you know, there are tens of thousands of, of, of titles available. And you, this is a terrible thing to say for a publishing professional. But you know, you don't have to read a new book all the time. I hardly ever do. I almost always you, read. You could read. Uh, I'm I'm into early 20th century fiction. People you've never heard of, yeah, uh, probably. Uh, and books are increasingly available. It's it's not. It's just changed. That's all. Uh, the double days and the random houses are, are are changing, and they seem to be scrambling right now. And in the last couple of weeks. There have been so many predictions about stuff, and they're trying to be more aggressive, I think. I don't know, Johnny, what you think. That well, I think it's actually pretty interesting what's going on right now with, with the world. I think the Are you Kindles referring to the whole thing with Macmillan and having their titles pulled off the That's fascinating to see how that Amazon, is going. Uh, okay. that, that's fascinating to see how that's going to, to shake out. It doesn't have... I don't deal with that directly, but I see it sort of indirectly when, when I talk with publishers. And when, when, when I talk with other sort of uh, companies that are doing 
participating in the sort of new forms of publishing. I mean, the, the iPad, the Kindle, those things are pretty great. They they open up uh, areas for new forms of of, of reading and, and, and distributing this type of information. I think one use that we'll start to see is uh, it will be for, for business people, for lawyers and investment bankers who want to take a 10K or prospectus with them or 20 of them. They don't have to pile them all in their briefcase anymore. They can mm-hmm. have a... A, a, a sort of a large format iPad or large format Kindle or something called Plastic Logic that does something similar and read their sort of business uh, papers on, on, on a portable device like that. I think the book, the novel, uh, poetry, nonfiction, anything that sort of we would classify as quality nonfiction or, or, or novels, I'm, I think for quite a while we're going to continue to read those in, in paper format as well as electric format. I hope but so. <laughs> I, I think bookstores will change, though, in, in what they're merchandising. Um, with the with electronic publishing, there's no reason you shouldn't read a novel uh, on on a machine. But there are kinds of books that just won't work that way. Uh, pop-up books? <laughs> graphic I'm sorry? novels? Pop-up books. <laughs> well, there, will, there will be, new, there will be, new, te- there will be new technologies. <laughs> But I think art books, so-called yeah. coffee table books, will, uh, and uh, artists' books, which cost hundreds of dollars, uh, and, and some specialty titles will, will still prevail in bookstores. still but, the culture of wanting that nice traditional book by your bedstand. I mean, there's still a culture of being prideful about a library that you have or, you know, investing in a hardcover book. For, you know, that'll never go away. Well, I also I think, I think it will. I really? Mean, I, I, I do have too. absolutely stopped God, investing in books. All these... I, re- I resent that because I have a personal library of 20,000 books. <laughs> every, really? Yeah. Every, I, I what's the main, to my uh, library. What are the main strengths of the collection? Fiction. Uh, fiction. I keep books uh, it is that terrible... I'm willing to read more than once, but after that, I'm I'm I no longer seek to own a book. Hmm. I'd much but rather borrow it from a library. I won't deaccess a novel, but you're not going to like to hear this. But I I had a wall of cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> now that I still have. <laughs> well, I discovered that, that I did I do. You know, I've, I've got my favorite cookbooks. I I will never give away Carol Fields' Italian Baker. Yeah. Uh, there are many books I just you know my Texas cookbook that I wouldn't get rid of, but there were a lot that I found. I'm sorry, Epicurious served me very well. Yeah. Mm. And huh. if, I'm, if I'm trying to save space. And, and dictionaries. Suddenly I found myself throwing out massive random house American <gasps> heritage dictionaries that I paid $30, $40 for. I, I have an I OED, a- and I enjoy getting it out and having the magnifying glass as a certain ritual to looking up a word. But I can, I can see how with certain reference titles... The, the, for, the switch to, to electronic format makes a lot of but sense. It, Cookbooks in, in particular, you can imagine a world in which your, your oven five years from now has an electric display that allows you to store and read yeah. recipes. So it's, in, in a way, it's a shame because my wife is, is an author of two cookbooks, and I think cookbooks are a, one of the sort of the great, uh, a, a, just a, a wonderful cultural thing. And, That's and what people would like to have a self-published. food professional, I mean, I, I cooked professionally for 18 years, and um, I will never enjoy reading a recipe online. I need to read it in a book. I mean, not that well, I use print them that it out. Often. 
It doesn't work. You're for me. all over I, the I place. Don't like You're it. saying that we're going to lose all books, but you can't live without books. What's well, going cookbooks, on here? Well, I can, I can, cookbooks are the one category that I I have refused to stop uh, collecting, and uh, that I won't get rid of. You just won't. Well, I mean, I will say Katie has a lovely collection that she's inherited from her, you know, parents of oh, American heritage that, yeah. collections. I've been to her house in Rhode Island. Oh, yeah, I have all the a, old American heritage. And I also love they were the way covers. that yeah. library Fabulous. unveils itself. In the little rooms, there'll be a little shelf dedicated just for little children's books. It's very we have nice. a bathroom in the back upstairs that has about four small shelves built into the wall. Now, why you would put a book storing facility in a bathroom i do not know well, actually was, i know precisely why you put the bookstore <laughs> the I, I have it in both of mine you have a it was built into your house yes well that's really? smarter than your toaster oven collection which was in the basement <laughs> next to the bathtub <laughs> well we will um we should have you guys back on as you guys write more or is this machine maybe we could do a big premiere at the uh, mcnally bookstore at the mcnally jackson bookstore yeah. that would yeah. be wonderful when Whoa. is that gonna happen it's some, going to be sometime. I would. I don't have an exact date, but sometime I imagine in the next three to six months. Fantastic. Well, do right. keep us posted. Can on Can I that. bring Actually, my yeah. um, my flip book? Bring it. <laughs> bring okay. a flash drive with do you. Do I have to do anything? Can I just? I have to give you a digital version of it, like a Microsoft Word saved as an attachment. That that would be fine. Probably what's best is a PDF because then oh. it prints. You know, as it an image itself. It prints a cleaner. Yeah. Just okay. show up. Just show up with a little flash drive. Plug it in the machine. Print it out in just a couple minutes. Wow. All right. Well, we we have there's more there's more to say, but I guess we have to give way well, to the next show. Yeah, um, we should give a, a little break. We didn't take much of a break in the beginning. Yeah. Do you have a couple of issues that we should have brought up? Well, I was just curious about um, the the whole sort of you were talking about the royalty. You know, like of course you get to collect all your royalties, even though you're you're paying for the cost of of producing your book. And this is the trade off in self publishing um, is that you. You know, you get to get all the dough, but, but you have again, to do all the homework. You got to do all the work, and but you have to absorb the expenses. You make a higher percentage off, off. I would imagine off a sale, the cover price of your book, than you would if you were just a traditionally published author. Oh, you bet. Yeah, you would make seven point five percent or so for a paperback as an author royalty, whereas the percentage of the uh, and by sale the way, you, you, you should mention that you have to earn out your advance before you get that royalty. That's correct. So, well, I don't get any advance. All I have right. is overhead. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but so it, you really got to hustle yourself you around bet. with the station wagon man. <laughs> <laughs> Until Johnny gets more machines built. That's right. More, I'm working on it. I'm working on please, it. Please, please. <laughs> in every city in the, in the so, world. That's the plan. But um, Bob, how have you, I mean, to talk about, to go back to the whole marketing thing for a second, how, what, you've built a fabulous website Thank for you. your books. It was built and in Pakistan. Okay, <laughs> where all websites seem to be going nowadays. They should be. Um, but uh, and and has that really worked out for you? Are you able to like really leverage that? You know that first of all that financial commitment, but also can are you working your website in all the ways that one does work them? I mean, uh, I don't really know what those ways are. I still haven't figured that out. But not enough. And I I, I have. I I built a lot of devices into both books that are that can be used as part of internet. Mm-hmm scams right <laughs> uh, no contests and little things which i'll be building um, on book club thing yeah the great the great thing about self-publishing is you you're not tied to pub dates the way right. that a, a publisher is they're tied to sales conferences and publicity releases i'm not i can do as big a job in july as i'm doing in february and you can huh. also and, change and that is a great thing and you can change on the fly your your book block as well i mean you if 
in you something can, yeah. happened in July that you wanted to reflect in an August printing yep. of the book, you yeah, could do that. That's as, an that's interesting right. thing. Everyone's always waiting 10 years to write an addition to a book. Well, we to... have one. I think you'll like this, Bob. We have one, one self-published author who used our machine at Harvard and for specific readings would use different covers or different end yep. pages that he would have cool. inserted on the book. And it just made it a more organic artistic every, experience. Every time I go back to press on these books, which I'll be doing on the fluffy book in the next couple of weeks, I can catch the typos. Also, I can add to my list of dedicates. I was going so, to say that. So if you got a cat, give me their cat's name and they will be in the dedication page. Coro. Coro. Have you been mispronouncing his name all this time? Yeah, we call him Coro. Really? It's Corobuta. I know, but we, okay. we call him Koro, and he okay. answers to that. And my God, what a love-in we had last night. Kind of like, away for a few days. Kind of oh. like Kaz Matsui is just called Kaz. I'd Kaz. Say, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Major League Baseball. Well, this is uh, very interesting, very interesting, uh, very interesting self-publishing. I mean, Gutenberg, complete nobody. I yeah. mean, you have to wait forever we couldn't to have make done it a book. <laughs> well, that's couldn't true. Have, that's right. There, there would have All been right. no Bob, I no Johnny without I shouldn't Gutenberg. write him off. No, no, well, it's been the Just same. Kidding. It's been the same system for 500 years. A centralized printer. The books are sent out to locations where they're sold, and He's then a mafia they're not sold there. He's breaking. Through. I know That's you're, the plan. you are. You're yeah. you're trouble. I am. I you're am. trouble. And you're in the meat distribution industry, so you'll know about is the some mafia. Plane, is some plane going to drop like 10,000 books on us? And yeah, we'll absolutely. Be yeah, by the weight. Of That's it. Hardcover. Bertelsmann. Right. <laughs> they're going to be coming after us. <laughs> Katie, who do we have uh, next week? Next week we have Ed, Ed Schoenfeld. Oh, very Ed nice. Schoenfeld is uh, the restaurateur who opened up uh, Shunley and Shunley West. Shunley Palace. Yeah, he's been in the business for many, many years. He was the guy who really popularized Chinese cooking in, uh, you know, upscale Chinese cooking in New York City. And he okay, is. I'm going to miss that. I'm going to be at that farm building the whole infrastructure oh, for the farm down. Oh, south. what a shame. Yeah, I'm going with 14 or 15 of the people from uh, Roberta's Ann's coming. We're going to go on Oh, they're doing style. a barn raising. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be great. It's going to be very exciting. Well, yeah. um, Well, guys, luck. thank you very much for making the I trek I wish you great fortune. Here. And uh, we're going to have a fabulous lunch now, so don't go away. My pleasure. And Roberta's and, is fantastic. Oh. Yeah, Roberta's is a lot of fun. It's We've been engineered, place. really. This entire, I would say Bushwick as a neighborhood would not exist without Jack Inslee and Nat Wiener. And Nat Wiener. Yeah. Thank you, boys, and we'll see you next week.